Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Online on DAB Plus, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Uh, we have sashayed our way out of another heat wave, it would seem, and uh, now the rains have started. So don't worry, uh, we'll be keeping you updated with all of, of course, the weather uh, that you will need to know about throughout the course uh, of the day. Uh, Kevin O'Sullivan was just telling us that you got absolutely soaked up in North London this morning. Uh, meanwhile, here in the middle of London, uh, it doesn't seem too bad. But there's lots to talk about this morning. To wit, loads of migrant stories around. Uh, we've got a story saying that the French, who have been supposedly paid hundreds of millions of Euros in order to stop the uh, migrants from leaving French shores. Uh, basically, not stopping them from leaving French shores. I think this is the least surprising news of the day, but congratulations to Daily Express for doing a pretty good investigation into it, where they've actually gone over to France to see what it is that the local gendarmerie have actually got to say for themselves. Uh, and what they've got to say for themselves is that actually they feel a bit sorry for some of these migrants, and uh, so they basically don't stop them because they like helping them uh, because they're people in dire straits. Well, not all of them are, as we know, because two of them have now been locked up uh, for the crime of illegally attempting to enter Britain. Now, it seems to me, and I've been talking about this since Sunday, and I mentioned it yesterday on the show, that if you are trying to come to Britain illegally, uh, despite what the lefties say, you are trying to come to Britain illegally. And if you can be locked up for trying to come to Britain illegally, and there's two of you, then why can't we lock up another 20,000 people who are trying to come to Britain illegally? What's the difference? There isn't any. The only difference is that the two guys who have been locked up were actually seen and visibly filmed having a, a fight and attacking the French uh, authorities as they were trying to stop them from leaving the French beaches, right? So these guys got involved in whacking the French around with some uh, swords, uh, with some sticks, with various bits of weaponry uh, in order to try and get onto the dinghies. They eventually did. When they arrived in Dover, they got arrested. But they've been done, not for attacking the French police, they've been done for entering Britain illegally. Now that tells you all you need to know. Forget about the lefty lawyers, forget about the human rights activists, forget about all the people who tell you, oh, that they're coming here legally, they can claim asylum. No, they cannot. They have been ruled by a court in this country to have come here illegally, and so they've gone to prison for a year. Well, I say that's a massive precedent. We'll be talking to Rupert Lowe coming up later on in the show. We'll find out why. We can't do that to everybody else. Also, the NHS, a couple of staggering stories in the NHS this morning. Uh, one in The Guardian, in which it says that 60% of people at medical school are not looking forward to going to work for the NHS and will probably leave the NHS uh, within two years of being in it. So what's the point of training to be in it if you don't want to be in it? Just go and do something else. 
But more importantly, probably one in three female surgeons assaulted by a colleague, according to another study, uh, which is on the front page of The Times today, uh, under the banner The Times Health Commission. Um, in the past five years, a survey has found in the British Journal of Surgery that misogynistic culture in hospitals poses a significant risk to patient safety. So once again, the sainted NHS is proven to be not exactly what it says on the tin. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. We'll take your calls, of course, this morning as well. We'll continue our conversations about uh, Suella Bravman's plan to ban the XL bully dogs. And we'll also talk about China. Kemi Badenoch thinks that China needs to hit net zero. Uh, well, they sort of do. But maybe what we should say is that we'll only go for net zero once they've got there. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let us get it on. A very good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham, the one place where you get the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Let's talk to Ella Whelan, first up columnist with Spikes Online. Ella, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. Thanks very Hi. much indeed for joining us. I've got a sort of um, a slight bee in my bonnet at the moment because we've come back from the school holidays. We've come back from the kind of summer recess in Parliament. We're back to business uh, in general. Um, but there's still, it seems to me, uh, uh, is a sort of um, a flatulence about our government, which is sort of meaning that they're not really doing much but producing an awful lot of hot air and an awful lot of noise, but not really very much action. Um, and I thought I'd ask you uh, how you see the next few months going, because it seems to me we're sort of drifting pointlessly in some, um, you know, sea of calm. Well, I suppose they don't think it's pointless. I think it's probably quite a, a studied flatulence, because in the run up to a uh, next election, rather than, you know, what might be perhaps a successful um, means of moving forward, of actually making good on some of the Rishi Sunak's pledges, of maybe, you know, doing something about schools, not having the legacy of this government be to essentially ensure that schools are closed for longer than they've ever been open. Um, but there is, I think they're sort of are unwilling to do anything very concrete because of a kind of cowardice in the run-up to whatever's going to happen in 2024 um you know on the other hand it's sort of an open secret at the moment within the conservative party that many of its mps um and people who work within the party are saying we need a period of time in opposition um we have lost our edge we need a bit of practice and so they've almost given up before the election has even been finalized or called so there's so why would they do any work <laughs> why why would they do anything big or bold or challenging so there's we're, we're in a kind of really depressing period mm. of sort of um stagnation where you have you know even even if we are going to have a labor government um in 2024 or whenever the election is uh, you know they are also as most parties are in the run-up to an election unwilling to say anything substantial unwilling to lay out any uh coherent kind of plans i don't mean sort of like budgets but yeah. just you know big ideas right so th there's essentially nothing happening but but this is the kind of cynical place that we now find ourselves in and maybe we're all to blame for that because maybe we're all too cynical and critical and and, and possibly you know fatigued by all of the, the shiny new objects that we get thrown at every now and again which turn out not to be actually anything much more than uh, balls of cardboard anyway but in the end you wonder 
surely a government should be in to actually dazzle us every day. I mean, I know it's the business of running the country, but shouldn't they be having big ideas all the time? Shouldn't they be continuing to, to kind of investigate what the country could do better every single day? Isn't that their job? Well, it's funny you use the word dazzle because actually I think that's what happens quite a lot, which is that they, um, they, you know, for example, obviously I care as much as the next person about dog attacks. I think they're horrible, these XL bullies and all the rest of it. But the fact that we've, you know, we get these kind of uh, almost policy announcements that are aimed at sort of being a bit dazzling, being a bit sort of attention grabbing yeah. and looking like they are the biggest thing that everybody should care about. And, you know, yes, people, you know, children have died from dog attacks. This is a big deal. To my mind, it's sort of no brainer. Get the dogs off the streets. But um, it's turned into this sort of big thing where so like Braverman's briefing people and, you know, there's all there's a big commotion around it. And that's a very easy tack for a government to take, mm. to take, you know, or, or you know, at, at the moment there are sort of discussions about, um, you know, following the Lucy Letby case, the whole row about whether or not you would force people to come to court to hear verdicts. That became a big, huge moment of a sort of a success point for Rishi Sunak and the government. And of course, all that does really is mask the fact that there's nothing substantial happening because it's very easy to pass one little policy, make one little policy mm. announcement and make a big deal out of it. It's much harder to tackle the, you know, there are no quick results for tackling the cost of living crisis, for tackling the issue of small boats, for looking at, uh, you know, maybe building some more houses somewhere, mm. please. You yes. know, none of these none of these things provide quick results. Um, and so right. governments are, I think they're one full of careerists, unfortunately, and this is me being really cynical, and number two, full of people who mm. aren't able to think past next week. No, and I wonder if that's the system, you know, and I've said this before that, uh, you know, perhaps we expect too much because everything has been done sort of on the hoof and it does seem as though an awful lot of government in this country is done sort of as a, re as a re response to something rather than as a kind of a leadership scenario you know it's like oh my god you know a lot of schools have got this concrete in that's going to collapse we've better shut them all down oh my god you know we've got terrible problem in the nhs um we better sort of try and give them a bit more money see if that makes any difference you know and and for for, 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 for probably most of this century i suppose even under the tony blair government you know they were genuinely changing things as as people were kind of not really paying attention but nothing's really been changing much in this uh, nation, I don't think, since the Tories were in. I don't think they've, I mean, they've done things which have made it worse. And I say mm. that as somebody who would generally be supportive of a lot of what they do, you know, but they haven't really improved anything. No, I think it's because there is, they don't, one, they don't know who they are. I mean, if you think back to uh, 2019, which feels like it was, uh, you know, a different century. Yeah, yeah it does. But but the but you know the whole narrative in which boris johnson's government took on its election victory was that the conservatives were reimagining themselves as the people's party that it was focused on you know after this sort of severe period of disunity post brexit and mm. people you know public scraps among mps and sort of a sort of fissuring within both parties as it happens then 2019 was like right okay look this thing democracy we see that it's kind of popular and we're gonna let we're gonna get behind it and maybe we'll make a go of it and you know i have never voted for the conservatives um and but i thought i didn't vote for them in that election but after that victory i thought well this could be interesting mm. this this could you know some things might happen i think a lot of people at the and end of january of 2020 were going 
yeah, this would be great, you know, because suddenly we right. will be able to do all the but, things that they said we couldn't do, right? At least that was the rhetoric. And then, of course, okay, the pandemic happened, which, you know, no one, no one, uh, it's no one's fault necessarily that the public health crisis happened, but the way in which it was handled by the concept, the, by the government, mm. um, the complete lack of any democratic accountability. In fact, the, the actual desecration of democracy in many yeah. instances. Yeah. Um, revealed that that was all just a bit of sort of you know words that i can't say this early in the morning bs it was just <laughs> nonsense and and so then i you know obviously it's cheap to say that we've now run through however many prime ministers with liz truss and all the kind of infighting and this just smacks of a party that has no ideology it has no sense no. of what it's what its fundamental core beliefs in they're you know they're rowing over how to deal with small boats they're divided on the european convention yeah. of human rights that you know you name it they're split it's literally so, for me it's like having a country run by management consultants that's what it feels like yes it's incredibly technocratic i mean this is the problem with rishi sunak he's little boy technocrat he he is you know he he's like a, a very similar and there's a reason why they get on to Emmanuel macron um, in France, who is the kind of European technocrat. It's all about how to quietly and calmly manage things, balance books, don't do anything that rocks the boat, don't do anything too big, don't do any, just, just you know, keep tweaking the levers and, and, um, and you know, and being, that's the why it's technocratic, being incredible, sort of technical about mm. it. One, that doesn't solve any issues. And two, it doesn't really capture the hearts and minds of, the public who are not so stupid as to think that the you know the country is supposed to be run like a bank or like a like the NHS yeah. or like an institution. I mean these are now two things you've mentioned which in old days in old fashioned times would have been thought of as well. That's quite a good way to run things. Actually banks and the NHS possibly two of the worst run organisations you could have picked. But anyway, stay where you are because uh, I've got some bad news for you. Apparently the government's disinformation unit, which caused so much trouble during COVID, is still going. David Davis MP wants to get rid of it. I don't blame him. Uh, more from Ella Whelan and myself coming up next on Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We're talking to Ella Whelan, uh, columnist at Spikes Online. Um, Ella, well, we'll come back to that uh, misinformation unit, which is still being run, apparently. I don't know whether it's still being run by uh, Hancock's house elf, as he used to be known, uh, young Mr O'Brien. But what about these NHS stories this morning? The one in the Times, one in three female surgeons attacked and assaulted uh, sexually by a colleague. And 91% of women in the NHS in this survey saying that they've witnessed some kind of sexual misconduct. It's quite an extraordinary figure isn't it sorry mike you just dropped out oh there. sorry uh, i was just asking you about this nhs story in the times um the extraordinary numbers that they uh, reveal which is that one in three female surgeons has been assaulted by a colleague in some kind of sexual way and that 91 percent of uh, women in the survey uh, have witnessed some kind of sexual misconduct in the nhs well, yes. I mean, obviously horrendous. It sounds terrifying and it adds to the um, it adds to the kind of wonder about what's going on within particular NHS trusts in relation to some of the stories that have come out about the way in which patients are treated, um, not sexually harassed, but um, kind of emotionally abused, really, in other ways. Obviously, the proviso is and the caveat is that you know, often when you dig down into these um, headline grabbing stats, a lot of what constitutes sexual misconduct, for example, can be a range of things. Mm. Um, and so you have to be careful when you approach a story like this, you know, of what it entails. Are we including 
off-collar comments alongside, you know, something that I had um, a former NHS staff reporting on the radio this morning about surgeons behaving incredibly inappropriate during a uh, during a surgery, you know, yeah. doing things to a patient's body that is utterly unacceptable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, from the kind of jokey to the, you know, very, very suspect sexual assault range. Mm. Um, but, you know, there is a, there's, there's kind of a some there is questions about um i know whether you whether you blame this on um sort of burnout and staffing levels whether that means that people become who work within the nhs who we you know any of us who have been to hospital know that the system's terrible it's rubbish but usually the people who work there are wonderful and well, I wouldn't say that's my experience, actually. I wouldn't say that's everybody's experience. Quite often people go into hospitals and find people to be incredibly rude, uh, incredibly impatient um, and incredibly nasty to, to the patients because they don't treat you as you are treated, say, for example, in the private sector, uh, where you're treated as somebody who's actually a paying customer. The NHS doesn't see you as a paying customer, even though you are. And what I was going to point out really here is that if uh, there's all this going on, uh, I don't think you can put it down to burnout. I think you put it down to people behaving in a particular way but what it doesn't suggest to me is that it's a place where you know everybody's rushed off their feet well i i, I mean the thing is i i'm sort of loathe not because i want to join in the kind of sacralization of the nhs but um you know there is it i think people go in there wanting it's a very hard job going in there wanting to do the best that they can and i know that for example from my own experience when I had my son, you get a bad, you get unlucky with a bad shift for people who are, you know, to, to run off their feet and who are, um, I mean, the only explanation is that they're knackered and have stopped caring because I don't think they've just sort of been evil. And you get a oh, hard time I don't think they're evil, it. no. But I don't think the, they're evil. I just think it's so badly but, run that it doesn't help anybody. And I but think... This is yeah, this is the point I'm trying to make, which is that if, you know, we have, uh, you know, there have been lots of criticism for the strikes recently i personally supported them um supported the strikes there's been a kind of a lot of head scratching around what to do with the nhs and you mentioned earlier you're right that often governments have for for decades governments um approach to this has just been to sling money in the door mm. and hope that that makes it better right. obviously that isn't there is some you know it's clear that one people aren't a lot of people aren't being paid enough and are being worked almost to death on the other hand, the system isn't working in which we are spending eye-watering amounts of money on things that are utterly useless, whether it's diversity training yeah. or indeed... And that's where the problems should start to begin to be to be sort yeah. of countered, I think, because what we know, for example, statistically, there are actually more doctors working in the NHS in hospital settings now than there were 10 years ago, but they tend to be working fewer hours. They tend to be working part-time because many of them go off and work in the private sector. And for all of the doctors who threaten to go on strike because they think that you know the nhs is being sold off there's an awful lot of doctors who do work part-time in the private sector and i think that's a mistake i don't think you should be allowed to i think if you work for the nhs you work for the nhs it's that simple you don't get to work for the private sector as well and we kind of laughable that those people from the bma who were going on strike were actually given permission by the union if they wanted to to work that day that strike day in their private practice I think we have to ask the question, as to, particularly with GPs, because it seems to be a big issue that, uh, and I know personally a number of them actually, of young uh, people who have trained, who come out of their training, are fully uh, ready to become, become start work um, in GP centres, are 
then deciding to take a completely left field step of their career off into something different mm. and we've lost a sense of public service of the of the idea of public duty that you that society has paid and trained you to a certain extent paid but trained you anyway and supported you in your pursuit of becoming this wonderful thing a doctor who's meant to save the lives of the community that you live in or whatever and the idea that you would spurn that is i think we have to ask the question of why that sense of public duty has been lost it's also a question that has to be asked within the police i mean that all of our sort of public institutions seem to be full of people who have no sense of or have lost a sense or jaded about a sense of public spirit or public service and you know there's no easy answer to that it's not their fault wholly but it it must be something that we're that's lacking within these systems that we're not able to inspire people to be able to not you know there's a sort of sacrifice is a word that i suppose will make people's eyebrows raise because i'm not suggesting that people should be working you know uh, you know 18 hours a day Mm. kind of thing but you know the fact that they're not and if they aren't but again when you talk about longer hours yeah but there's a lot of cobblers talked about that as well ella because if you do work 18 hours a day in the nhs you get paid very well for it because if you have to work an extra shift uh, you get double time quite often if you get uh, to work at the weekends you get more money for that as well so there's a lot of mis um, information let's let's shall we say being put out there a lot of it by the unions who basically say oh this is all terrible this is what we have to do but what they don't tell you is the extra money they get for doing the extra work because they do get that and I'm not denying that they work long hours but if they do they get paid more perhaps that's true but I also know that there is a but I also know that there is, you know, a lot of people who work. I mean, I'm, look, I'm not neither a union member nor am I an NHS staffer. But I mean, I take people at their word that there is a lot of lot of workers talking about the fact that there's, you know, you finish a shift, but the fish the shift doesn't official. You know, you can't just leave people with drips hanging out of them and you know patients who need to be consulted. And so then things drag, and that doesn't always necessarily get classed as overtime. And you know, we know that that. Well, I mean, we could go on about this. We, we could go on about this all day. But I could, unfortunately, I could. Unfor- we'll have to have a special session for it, uh, but we can't do it anymore. Listen, thank you, Ella Ween and columnist at Spikes Online. Very, very interesting views there. Um, and, of course, many people will agree with her. She said she was in favour of the strikes. I'm not. She says that people get paid not enough for the work that they do in the NHS. I disagree. You know, there are lots of people in the NHS who get paid a bucket load of money, um, and people out there in the general big, wide world who don't get a decent penny who don't get any kind of sick pay, who don't get any kind of double time if they work at the weekends, would kill for a job in the NHS, but they haven't got the training for it, so they're not given it. But that's what's wrong with the NHS. They've got too many people who think they're entitled to something when they're not. And if you don't want to be in the NHS, then don't go and work in it. I mean, ludicrous story today in The Guardian of all places, front page news, 60% of people currently training to work in the NHS don't want to work in it. Brilliant. What's wrong with you? Coming up, we're going to be asking the question, why should you pay more for a drink in a pub just because it's busy? This is Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here uh, on Talk TV. Angus in Yorkshire says, Mike, I'm tired of soundbite policies from the government who believe that we're all still fooled into believing that the government is taking swift action. In reality, nothing is done and our leaders believe our focus will move on to the next headline story. We see behind the curtain these days and we do not forget. Just do one thing well rather than do everything else appallingly. Stop the boats for heaven's sake. Uh, Absolutely right. And Lucy in Essex says, Mike, the NHS story is historic. I worked as a psychiatric nurse 
from 1978 until 2010. Being a female in the NHS was par for the course. You put up with unwanted advances or you shut up. You would never have been supported by management. We learned to keep quiet and not to rock the boat. Well, you see, once again, isn't it surprising that a basically left-wing organisation is riddled with sexism? Because they always are. You know, the worst kind of sexual harassment quite often goes on uh, in trade unions and in places which are run, uh, supposedly, for the public good. But there we are. Let's talk about drinking. I mean, you might think it's a bit early. 10.30 in the morning. Some people are already in the pub. Uh, but if you are willing and wish to go to one of the Stonegate pubs, apparently 4,500 venues across the UK, one of the biggest um, pub chains in the country, they've decided uh, that they're going to charge you more money when the pub gets busy. So you'll be paying minimum 20 pence more for a pint during those busy times. They say it's no different from charging less money for happy hour to get people into the pub. They're saying it's no different from any other kind of flexible um, charging for any sort of goods and services that you buy. Uh, some things are cheaper at other times, like on the railways, for example. You buy a ticket for off-peak, it's cheaper than when it's busy. Is there anything wrong with it? Well, I think there is. Let's talk to Chris Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the Institute for Economic Affairs. Chris, uh, very good morning to you. Morning, Mike. So, I mean, what do you make of this, first of all? I mean, I can see the logic of them saying it's not any different, really, from charging less money to get people into the pub for happy hour. But it sort of feels wrong, doesn't it? Yeah, it feels wrong because, I mean, they're absolutely right. It is exactly the same principle as having happy hour. And that's how they should be marketing it. If they want to do this, they should have put the prices of the beer up by 20p and then announced to the press that they're going to be selling beer cheaper at quiet times. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. That's clearly that's a PR problem for them, then, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, in principle, I, I don't like the sound of it personally. Uh, it feels a little bit exploitative. I, I don't think it's really the same as... Uh, you know, something like EasyJet selling cheap, uh, selling flights more cheaply because they've got extra space. I don't know how busy these pubs are, but uh, I imagine people can stand outside on the pavement as most people in central London do. So uh, I, I think this is probably a bit of a PR cock-up, really, um, and um, they're giving themselves some unnecessary bad publicity for the sake of 20p a pint. Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, it doesn't sound like an awful lot of money either, I suppose. I mean, if, you drink, if you'd have to drink five pints to spend an extra uh, an extra quid, it doesn't sound ridiculous. But then, of course, not everybody's paying the kind of money that uh, we're paying in London. I mean, maybe in London it's more like, you know, 50p a pint or 75p. Yeah, and even that probably wouldn't really make any difference to, um, you know, who's coming in and out of the pubs. The pubs in, in, in London are yeah. still remarkably busy, I think. I think uh, they're incredibly busy. Fun. I mean, every t- I mean, maybe it's something to do with the summer, but, but any, and certainly anywhere around where I'm uh, generally speaking working, um, or any, anywhere in central London, most evenings there's loads of people out on the streets drinking. Yes, indeed. Um, and prices are insanely high, um, obviously much higher than they are in the rest of the country, but they're pretty high in the rest of the country. The reality is actually that the wholesale price of beer has not gone up as much as some people think in the last couple of years. Mm. Um, so the the huge surge in prices that we've seen, particularly in the southeast, but around the country, um, aren't really justified by that. It's more, I think, that a lot of pubs are trying to recoup the money they lost during COVID. Yeah. And I mean, there's been an awful lot of damage to the pub business since COVID. Um, but I suppose if you've made it this far then business is going to be okay for for a lot of pubs. Well, you would hope so. And I, I'm still quite surprised when I'm walking past pubs in the afternoon how, how busy they are, actually, considering you've, you've got the cost of living uh, crisis, the economy's not doing particularly well. I notice it's mostly old people who, of course, are uh, protected, really, from inflation by the, the triple lock. Mm. So if the, um, if the pensions go up by 8.5% or in line with 
wages, because wages now, of course, are higher than inflation, as we found out today. Perhaps that money will filter through to the pub industry again. Yeah, maybe so. So do you think this is something that will become a thing then? Because, I mean, you study movements like this sort of socially and, and economically. Do you think other people will, will follow suit? You know, um, because, you know, the railways do it, as you say, the, the, the airlines do it. Um, will restaurants maybe start doing it? You know, I've noticed that some restaurants now uh, will start to take reservations after a certain time, but before that they won't. Um, you know, they have sort of, they've started to develop two different kinds of menus, you know, that kind of thing. I'd be surprised to see it happen um, in the pub industry, frankly. Uh, I mean, I, I think if we're talking 20p a pint, I don't think it really makes a lot of sense in terms of the kind of backlash you're going to get from customers. It's not really financially worth it. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think they're going to get more grief than they need to um, that other pubs, if this becomes a thing, will start marketing themselves as you know having a fairer, fairer pricing system, as it were, yeah. uh, being consistent. But otherwise, this gets a bit confusing, doesn't it? Really, and I, I think there's always going to be times of the day where you know technically they should be charging more or they should be charging less, but actually the pub's busier than usual or less busy than usual. You can't target this in the same way that um, an airline or a railway company can. No, of course not. And I mean, one thing, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but, it, but it's certainly been something I've noticed recently, and it's um, it's that sort of type of, I don't know, younger drinker who seems to be now thinking that you, you turn up in a pub and you form an orderly queue behind the person in front of you. I find it astonishing. I've, I've gone into quite a few pubs now around sort of London Bridge here that we would generally consider to be work pubs, right? And you go in and there's like a line coming out the front door and you're going, what's going on here? And then you go around the line and they're all literally standing by one behind each other like a queue for Tesco's. And I'm thinking, that's not what I'm doing. I'm going straight around to the side and I'm going to, luckily, because I know them, I'm going to order a pint and I'm going to walk off and go and sit down. And they all look at me as if I've done something horrible. But actually, uh, I don't understand anyone who wants to queue at a bar. No, I don't, look, this is, this is Britain. We're not going to start queuing up at the bar. I, I had the same experience on Saturday. Um, you know, it takes a certain amount of bottle to you know, break through and just walk to the bar, but you are absolutely within your rights. Yeah. The main part of the barman's job is to work out who is next. Right. We don't need to be queuing up in single file. I absolutely hate it. I don't know where it's come from. Yeah. I suspect it might be American tourists now and again or something like that. Who, no, these are all people that I can tell. No, these, these are all the kind of bearded, bearded Ramona sort of, um, you know, we work from home three days a week types. One, what happens, I think, is you get one person at the bar and then somebody comes in and doesn't know what they're doing and they stand behind that person. And then once you've got the makings of a queue, British people being who they are will just join it. The, you've got to uh, ignore it, break through it. You know, you can end this as quickly as it started. But it's something that I haven't really seen. Yeah, very I feel like, you know, what I feel like doing is, is, is manufacturing some uh, sort of plastic mats and handing them out to them and saying, look, you stand on that uh, and then the next guy behind you will stand on it. He'll be a metre away and then you can go all the way down the street and you can pretend it's COVID again and maybe you'll feel more at home. Yes, maybe it was, like so many things, maybe it was COVID that introduced this rather aligned yeah. uh, trend. Absolutely. Let's talk about vaping um, because you're a man that knows a thing or two about uh, the smokables uh, of, of this world. Uh, there's supposedly going to be a ban made on disposable vapes to stop children becoming addicted. Like all plans to stop children becoming addicted to things, I suspect this will fail. Yeah, I would think so, and, and have some, some unpleasant, unintended consequences along the way. Look, there is an issue with uh, kids using disposable vapes. There's, there's no two ways about it. You know, usage has gone up a lot in the last two or three years. Yeah. Um, but the, the answer to that is to get the police and the trading standards to enforce the law. 
Um, it's very, very easy for, for kids to teenagers to get vapes from corner shops uh, in particular. It shouldn't be that easy. It should be as difficult as getting a pack of cigarettes or getting vodka. Look, kids occasionally do get hold of cigarettes and vodka, but we don't ban either of those. The idea that we should ban something that is already restricted to people aged 18 or over because some people under the age 18 are using it is ridiculous. You yes. would ban all forms of alcohol and, and tobacco. Um, if we did that and 18 certificate films and goodness knows what else. That is not a sensible way to be governing. But as so often in politics these days, the government isn't really interested in governing. It's interested in, in legislating. We already have a ban on people underage buying these products. Let's enforce that rather than uh, interfering with the, the choices of adults. And most people who use these are actually adults. Yes, quite. I mean, one of the other things that you, you would have noticed uh, in all parts of the country are these vape shops that have grown up all over the place. And they don't look to me as though they're run in any way that looks particularly regulated. Um, I don't see kids going in and buying them, but I wouldn't be surprised if they don't care if they do. Yeah, quite right. I mean, uh, the regulations are, are there. I mean, insofar as they, they look unregulated, they, everybody's got to follow the same regulations. The products themselves are fairly tightly regulated. And, um, and, and there is a clear ban has been for some years on selling to people under the age of 18. So if the issue here is underage vaping, and I think it is, I think it's a shame that it's, it's happened and that, that certain uh, vapes have got popular with, uh, with school kids because it's undermined the entire category and people were, broadly speaking, fairly pro-vaping um, in, in, until quite recently. So it, it's, it's, it's dirtied the reputation of vaping. It's not a good thing. We need to get a handle on it, but the way to get a handle on it is not to ban these things, but to enforce the laws that currently exist. Otherwise, you go down the same path as Australia, where they just keep banning e-cigarettes again and again in various right. different ways. They've always been illegal. E-cigarettes contain nicotine in Australia. hasn't stopped kids using it. It's just, it's just meant that kids are buying unregulated e-cigarettes. You can get them everywhere. So then the Aussie government banned the import of these products. That didn't make any difference. Now they're putting them um, strictly on prescription, even if they haven't got nicotine. None of this is working. It's been an absolute disaster in Australia. I would beseech politicians to look at what has happened in Australia because um, we're still a long way from being that extreme. But I don't think you're going to deal with this issue, which fundamentally is a um, it's either a black market or it's a breach of regulations issue. Right. You're not going to sort this out by bringing in more regulations if you're not enforcing the ones that already exist. Well, that's been a problem for this government all over the place. I mean, this week alone, apart from the vaping ban, we've got a ban now being suggested by Suella Bravman on devil dogs, on these uh, XL bully dogs, which again, um, unless you can enforce a ban, what's the point of saying you're going to do it? Well, indeed. I mean, obviously this is true of everything, but maybe we just have too many laws in this country all, all, all round and, and the police are too busy enforcing various laws that maybe shouldn't exist in, in the first place. But look, you undermine faith in the law if you do not enforce the laws that already exist. And if you have too many laws and people just start ignoring them. Yeah, absolutely right. Good to talk to you, Chris. Thanks very much indeed. Chris Snowden, Head of Lifestyle Economics at the IEA. Howard says this, Mike, try and charge me more because it's busy and I'll tell them I'm about to make your pub less busy right now as I'm going to a pub around the corner that doesn't charge extra. <laughs> um, and Anthony says, uh, there is a dynamic pricing Stonehaven pub, which is my favourite today. My favourite pint is £2.55. At the weekend, it's £5.35. And on a normal day, it's £4.80. It's a bit mad, but I'll enjoy tonight's pint more than Saturday's. I mean, I don't suppose there's anything wrong with it. I mean, let the buyer beware, I suppose, is the point. But if you go to a place and they charge you different things depending on when you go there, is that the future? Is that the way forward? Let us know. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk TV. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
also, politically speaking, there's nothing in it for French officials, either in the local pop, uh, towns of northern France or indeed in the Elysee Palace for President Macron. There's nothing in it for them to make it look as if they're trying to stop them leaving. There's everything in it for them to make it look as if they're encouraging them to go. Absolutely, Mike. Well, I, I do admire the French. I mean, they are nationalists. They do love their country and they do everything to protect France above above everything else. So I, I can't see why they're going to take any notice of £480 million. We've increased what we pay them on a regular basis. And the net result has been that uh, illegal migration has continued apace. So uh, it's clearly not working. And until we start to see a reduction in the numbers, I would I would basically be reducing those payments, not increasing them. Mm. Uh, and I would be basically starting to empower and make the border taxi service more effective in intercepting people coming over and sending them back. Uh, we've obviously got to improve our processing. There's no doubt about that. I think we also need a steward's inquiry on the amount of legal migration that, that is happening. Uh, uh, as, as one of our, your, your previous um, uh, interviewees said, there seems to be this view that more Im immigration is a good thing because it increases GDP. But that's not the case. And I think anyone who tries to do business in the UK now knows that we are becoming an overcrowded nation uh, and we need to start looking at uh, how we deal with the, the, the situation domestically rather than encouraging further immigration. Well, I think I've got an answer for you, Rupert, because uh, you and I have been studying this for a while and you may have seen today um, a fascinating development because what's happened is two um, illegal migrants have been jailed over the course of the last um, couple of days and their crime was entering, attempting to enter the UK illegally. These are the two people taking part in a basically a battle on the beach with uh, the gendarmerie in France, uh, Ahmed Omar Salih Kater and Salih Taib Abdullah, two guys who got into fights and were waving sort of various weapons around, attacking the French before they got on dinghies to come here. When they got here, they were arrested, not for the crime of attacking the police, but for attempting to enter the country illegally. They've now been jailed for that crime. So my point would be, well, if you can jail people for trying to enter the country illegally, surely you can jail a lot more people who come here illegally. Totally, Mike. And look at these people. They're all young men. I yeah. think they've admitted it's 87% young men. Um, and do we want people like that coming into our country illegally? I and mean, the answer is no. Exactly. Uh, and I quite understand why people are getting vexed about it. Um, so, no, I, I, I mean... We've seen the Australians, they've cracked it. We should be taking a leaf out of their book, listening to them and, and ensuring that we, we stop this uh, this nonsense. But uh, I always like to say, watch what the hands are doing, not what the mouth is saying. And there's absolutely no correlation between what our politicians are saying and what they're delivering. And, and understandably, the British people are getting pretty, pretty vexed about it. No, of course. But, you know, we're told all the time by the powers that be in the kind of human rights lobby uh, that, you know, of course, it's legal for them to land here. As soon as they claim asylum, they're allowed to claim asylum and have every right to be here. Well, not according to the courts in this country who have threatened, who have sentenced these two characters to time in jail for trying to enter the country illegally. I'll say it again because I, I, I think it bears repeating. You know, if, they, if, they, if it's a crime to enter the country illegally, it's a crime to enter the country illegally. End of conversation, isn't it? Well, I think, Mike, the whole thing is symptomatic of the ineffectiveness of the civil service and, and the ineffectiveness of government. I mean, I've got some numbers here which will shock your, 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 your listeners. And I was listening to little Jeremy Hunt talking about the fact he's not going to be reducing tax anytime mm. soon. 
So uh, it, 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 people need to know that the, that the public sector, uh, when Boris Johnson took office, they were spending 888 billion, or we were, mm. uh, per annum on the, um, on the public sector. Um, according to the OBR now, we're spending 1.154 trillion, which represents 41,214 pounds per household uh, on the public sector. So our problem is we're spending more and their delivery is appalling. Yeah. And it does it's not just immigration, it goes across the whole the whole basis of, of the public sector. And it's even worse if you if you think that 37.3% of, of, of GDP. So I'll tell you that the number is 300,000 people are paying uh, three in 10 pounds of tax that's collected. Yeah. So what we're doing is the Conservatives have done their best to tax us all into oblivion. Mm. Those 300,000 people, Mike, with the benefit of the cybernetic revolution, they can actually disappear to almost anywhere in the world. Uh, and not pay tax here. So our problem is not uh, people avoiding paying tax. Our problem is the public sector. And until we start to actually cut the size of the public sector, until we start to address the ineffectiveness of the civil service, the ineffectiveness of Westminster, and, and we actually start to talk about the true numbers, we, we're going to continue to, 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 to get into a doom loop. And, you know, why would people stay in this country where they're overtaxed, yeah. not receiving the services they should be receiving? And we're all told that, you know, to be rich is 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 wrong and, and, and that the rich are, uh, are unkind. No, they're not. What the rich are doing is generating the wealth to fund the poor. And as Abraham Lincoln always said, you don't make the poor richer by making the rich poorer. Mm. Mm. I, I think you should be taking a leaf out of his book, cutting taxes, cutting waste like HS2, uh, maybe uh, we freeze, uh, you know, the, the, the benefits uh, for the next couple of years and we start to slash the size of the state. That would allow us to make tax cuts and it would allow us to some extent even to start repaying our national yeah. debt. Far too big. But this is so, a problem. The Tory party currently in situ seems to believe that the answer to all of our prayers about fixing the economy is to make the government bigger. Well, it isn't, is it? Clearly, no, it's definitely not. And you listen to that wretched woman, Angela Rayner, who, who uh, you know, spouts off, hasn't got a clue what she's talking about. I, I mean, you look at you look at our elected politicians, Mike. I, there's there's very little hope. We need an absolute or yeah. state job on the entire Westminster establishment, because what's happened is our system has hollowed them all out. So the only people you've got at the top of the tree are completely incompetent. Yeah. I know. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Speaking of which, just one final thought. Um, last night. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. 
We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Like the proms hijacked uh, by the EU-loving uh, Ramonas uh, who like to think that they represent lots of people in this country, but in fact don't. Well, this is, this is an interesting story because I, I think there's been a bit of overreaction about it. It's actually rather entertaining. I mean, the EU spends a fortune on PR. They've got a much bigger budget than we have. Uh, and they were obviously dishing out EU flags to make a point. But... Uh, it's always fascinating to me that the EU, who's done its best to stamp out the, the nation state, mm. all it ever really wants is its own flag and its own national anthem. Yeah, it's all. I think the whole thing's rather laughable, frankly. And um, a lot of the people at the proms, as we all know, probably voted Remain, so they were very happy to wave their EU star flag. Right. But, you know, I asked this question yesterday. What on earth do they think they're in support of exactly? Because it's not a country, it's a political machine. And when I go to Europe, I don't know about you, but I don't see people waving a union, uh, I don't see them waving EU flags. If I go to Italy, you see a lot of Italian flags, German flags in Germany, French flags in France, Spanish flags in Spain. You know, you don't see people waving the EU, apart from in this country, uh, where we're not a member. Well, we should be we should be waving Union Jacks and seeing Royal Britannia. That's what should be happening. Well, exactly, exactly. I but, mean, that, and that but, is last night. If you want to go around the streets waving an EU flag, by all means, do so. But that's not the right place to do it in. Now, perhaps you've like got to remember the BBC is all part of that as well. So you yeah, know, they they love they they always want remain. So they probably they probably help sponsor it too. They might find themselves on plank of the week again. I'm afraid, uh, coming up on Friday at 7pm. Rupert, thank you very much indeed. Rupert Lowe, uh, former MEP there, talking a great deal of sense, of course, as every as ever he does. Uh, Roger says this, Robert Pester and Ed Balls will be resting their weary old bones this morning after the worst clip of punk I've ever seen. Ian from Hull says, Robert Pester seems to be going through his midlife crisis. He's about as punk as Liberace. <laughs> this is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham. This is, of course, the one place to hear the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Uh, we'll have the, uh, uh, the the world of woke coming up in the next hour. Uh, we'll also be talking to Dan Hodges. We'll get his take because we haven't had it for a while on the Labour Party, on Keir Starmer, uh, Trade Unions Congress going on with Angela Rayner today. Uh, also, of course, we've got conference season coming up. Uh, we've got all manner of things to get into with him and we'll do that after midday. Uh, how about this from uh, Jace in Dudley? Mike, we all know now Starmer will be the next Prime Minister. I'm a Tory voter, but this isn't a proper Tory government. But these people who are voting Labour think it will be better, especially the illegal immigrants, will be very disappointed as they'll flood the country just like Blair did. Uh, Mike, the law says when you stand at a bar, the prices are to be displayed. Are this pub chain going to have two prices? Could this lead to dodgy staff ripping drinkers off when drunk? Regards Tony from Baron Furness. And Amanda in London says, as has been said before, uh, on the lack of civic duty, we have generally become a very selfish and self-righteous society with a lack of manners and a thought for others' well-being. Back to basics is urgently required. It's a sorry state of affairs. Well, to wit, that takes us on to our next 
subject, really, because Mary Jajewski is with us. Uh, she's written a piece in The Spectator um, about the problem with going shopping these days and the problem with self-service, the problem with uh, do-it-yourself tills, the problem with no staff and the problem with too many staff and the problem with shoplifting. Mary, um, a very good morning to you. And I know that we normally talk to you about what's going on in Ukraine and perhaps what's in the mind of Vladimir Putin. Uh, but on this occasion, uh, I think you've made a really interesting point in The Spectator about um, the dynamic and, and the change of that dynamic in our local, particularly mini supermarkets. Mm. Yes, I mean, I was I was really struck by the current sort of hue and cry about shoplifting and mm. saying, you know, this is a colossal epidemic. Um, and nobody actually really drawing any um, conclusion mm. about the introduction everywhere now of self-service tills to the point where there are almost no serve tills at all. Yeah. No tills where you can actually go and find a human being to interact with, you mean? Yes, and the thing is that they're so much better at it. You know, on the rare occasion that you actually find some uh, a tool with somebody mm. behind it, you know, they get through your shopping absolutely. You no, know, they know where to look for the barcodes. They put the stuff through. Um, the best ones even pick out the heavy stuff to go in your basket first. You can pack as they put it through. It's a million times more efficient. I mean, they just seem to be the. the, the when the first self-service tills were introduced, it just seemed to me that they were passing on the time and wage costs of their staff onto the consumers. And I have to say that, you know, however many years later, it still seems to me that that's what they're doing. Yes, absolutely right. And the problem for me now as well is that if they're going to start charging more money because they say the price uh, of everything has gone up, and if they're going to start charging um, excessively higher prices, in my view, uh, I think they should at least provide somebody to serve you. And I don't mean that in a, in, a, in, a, in a nasty way. I just mean that if you go into a shop, you should expect to be treated by somebody who works there, uh, who will welcome you, uh, who will be good and nice to you, uh, and who will make you feel uh, as though they actually want your custom. I don't get that sense from an awful lot of places I go now. No, and I think in some ways it's a pity because um, among the people who were really unsung heroes of the pandemic, I think at least, you know, in the small supermarkets that I used to go to in those t times, you know, they were the people who were showing up every day, doing their job, um, stacking the shelves, um, helping you through, explaining why some things were there, some things weren't. Um, and, you know, they were, in some ways, they were as much the heroes as the uh, of the pandemic. Um, as the NHS was. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a pity in a way that, um, you know, and, and, and the shoplifting thing isn't unrelated to this. I think that people, you know, if people felt better about going to their supermarkets, maybe um, there would be, you know, more cooperation either way. Right. Um, as you were, you were talking about prices, incidentally, I did wonder, you know, maybe we should get a discount for using the self-service tools. Well, After again, all, you know, we're saving them staff money. Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, I'm all in favour of, of predatory pricing <laughs> as long as it's predatory in, in our direction. You know, in the sense that if you are getting less of a service, then you should pay less exactly. for it. In the same way that you used to not pay VAT on something that you took out of a place to eat. Um, and you only paid it if you sat down and ate it inside the shop. But you've also talked about a change in the nature of the sort of dynamic in terms of people sometimes being stopped before they leave now uh, and maybe being asked if somebody can look in their bag or if there's some kind of QR code to get out. I mean, I don't personally have a problem with that. I was in France recently, actually, well, I say recently, Easter, and I went to the supermarket there um, and you would have a, um, 
uh, a, a receipt would come out of the self-service till, which you would then wave in front with a barcode <laughs> on the gate before you could walk out. I didn't really have a problem with that. No, I mean, I think it's an, it's an extra bit of faffing around that you wouldn't need if you were actually going through a, a starved till. Right. Um, but what's always struck me about, um, about, about the British mini supermarkets since they introduced um, self-service checkout is that there were actually no barriers to leave and there were often nobody checking um, whether you'd actually been through a self-service till as you left. Right. Um, I, you know, I've watched people that, so far as I could see, had been no, nowhere near the self-checkout tills um, just walking out. So, um, but if you tried to do that in a, in a, in a French supermarket over the years, um, even if you went in and you didn't buy anything, yeah. actually getting out was a whole problem because they've got <laughs> barriers. Um, I find and, that here, though, as well. I mean, if you go to a big supermarket here and all the yes. tills are open, if you try and go out through one of the tills that's not open, there's a gate there which stops you. Heaven yes. forbid that you go through that. And you, there isn't really any way out. No, exactly. Um, and it, it just seems that things have been allowed to get so incredibly lax that everything is sort of self-service, mm. including taking up the stuff off the shelves and walking right. out. And then people complain, well, there's an epidemic of shoplifting. Yeah, I mean, I, I used to get very worked up when I was, I, mean, I think it was one, of, I'm not going to name them, but one of the supermarkets declared that they were no longer going to give out plastic bags for the fruit and vegetables. So if you were actually going to buy any of it, uh, you'd have to buy it loose and you'd have to sort of price it yourself. You'd have to put it on a, on a scale. You'd have to press a button to try and find it on some ridiculously complicated map and then you'd have to then charge yourself get a sticker to print out and stick it on the fruit and then somehow carry it you know in your arms if you didn't have anything else to put it in to the checkout counter you know it's like you're paid to do this you do it please for us also because they're just so much better at it you yeah. know they're the professionals and right. um, and i'm still you know after all these years i'm still absolutely useless at it i have to say <laughs> yeah, but I mean, so what's what's the future? I mean, we all, have, I don't know whether you've seen them. There's a couple of them around here, Amazon um, supermarkets, where basically you can't even enter the store unless you're a, a Prime member of uh, uh, Amazon Prime and you've got yourself a, um, a QR code to even go into the shop. There's nobody in there. So if you can't find something, there's not even anyone to ask where it is. And then when you come out, there's nobody to check what you're leaving with either. No, I know I don't go anywhere near those, um, but it reminds me in a sort of it, it, as a sort of modernised version, those totally unmanned shops. You know, all over Eastern Europe at the time when it was Eastern Europe, yeah. there were these sort of um, coin-operated um, sort of automatic dis dispensers ah. with all sorts of things behind them. You put in your coins, and you know, hopefully, um, you were able to pick out your your, your item, mm. um, and there was always you were always suspicious as to how fresh anything actually was in yeah. those in in those dispensers but it reminds me of that as being a totally impersonal um way yes. of getting provisions particularly for people who are maybe elderly who are not on the internet who don't order their food to be delivered to them at home they like to go to the shop with their little shopping trolley and they buy just enough for the next couple of days but it's a sort of a social event for them you know apparently that's not allowed anymore the other thing that worries me slightly and i've noticed this in my local mini supermarket uh if you do go to the self-serve um uh, place and because there's never anybody behind the real till they're now filming you because you're looking into a camera and you, your face appears on the screen in front of you as if you want to know what you look like. I mean, I presume they're recording that, and that's data uh, uh, collection for them. I mean, it's, 
it's a strange situation, isn't it? Where you, in a way you're you're more monitored when you go to do a small amount of shopping than you are practically when you leave the country or when the, when you enter the country. Certainly, you know, there's no exit controls um, and haven't been for years um, at British airports. Mm. The airlines are supposed to do it for the for for, for, for the authorities. Right. Um, but when you're in a supermarket, you know, you go in and as you say, you know, your your, your face may be scanned and you may be tracked around the whole place. Mm. You never know. Facial recognition may reject your entry the next time you turn up and they might say, well, uh, we, sorry, we forgot that you weren't the person we said you were. It sounds like you were somebody else. Ridiculous. Mary, thank you very much indeed. Mary Dijewski there uh, with a sort of a, a takedown uh, and, a, and an examination of what it is actually now like to go shopping. Because you would like to think, would you not, as things get more expensive, that somebody actually cares about the service that they give you. Supermarkets don't seem to. They seem to have given up on that. Uh, a lot of places in restaurants seem to have given up on that as well. Sometimes you have to go to somewhere very expensive to get decent service. And even then, perhaps it's not what you would expect it to be. But there's a lot of change going on in uh, the United Kingdom right now. Uh, and we're charting it for you. And we're asking what you think of it. So we'll take more of your calls, of course. 0344 499 1000. Coming up, Craig McKinley, MP, is going to be here. He's chair of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group because he's going to talk to us about what on earth is happening uh, with the new rollout of uh, gas um, boilers and what's happening if you have a gas boiler or you want to fit a gas boiler there's been a letter circulating uh, which a lot of people have seen on social media we'll get into that coming next on talk tv on dab plus on the app talk radio and if talk I really tv did, I before Welcome back to the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Uh, the reason politicians are useless is because no one has had to be any good due to being in the EU. They only had to rubber stamp all the new laws, no intelligence needed, no wonder they wanted to remain, uh, says Carolyn Ilford. Well, not everybody wanted to remain, Carolyn Ilford, and not all politicians are tarred with the same brush. And I'm about to speak to Craig McKinley, uh, who's MP uh, and chair of the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, and I can very much ac uh, account for him uh, and his uh, absolute acumen as to what he does, because Craig McKinley is a man uh, that we should count as one of our best MPs, actually. Craig, uh, I'm sorry to have to begin the interview by hosing you down with praise, but, you know, um, we, we like to make sure that not everybody gets, uh, gets told that they're doing a useless job, uh, because that's not really fair on you guys. Well, that's a rare event, and thank you, Mike. <laughs> well, it's important, though, it really is, because there is, a, a, I mean, there is, unfortunately, and to some extent, MPs themselves are to blame for this. There is an unfortunate sort of view abroad that a lot of MPs are kind of not really understanding what ordinary people are going through. They're living their lives quite well cosseted from the cost of living increases. They've got quite a lot of perks and all that kind of thing. But I mean, I think, in, in, particularly in your case and in, in, in many of your colleagues' cases, you do do important work. You do ask questions of the government. Um, a lot of people are dissatisfied with the government at the moment. But the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, for example, um, is the only place really inside of Westminster where you hear the kind of conversations that we have every day on Talk TV. No, absolutely right. I mean, I, I'd started this up uh, two years ago uh, because if we are embarked on a process that's going to cost three trillion pounds across the country to decarbonise, I think we need to be making those decisions based on proper facts, uh, allowing people to know what the price is going to be and how it's going to affect their lives. And increasingly, people are saying, hold on, is it really going to cost that? Why am I doing this? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I want a better planet. I want that as well. And I get all that. 
But then you look overseas with Britain's 1% of global CO2 output and you see other countries still expanding, China digging up new coal, uh, increasing their output in one year. Just the incremental increase is the entire output of the UK. And British people say, well, hold on, yeah, we sort of agree with it, but, you know, let's be sensible here. This has to be a global effort, not a unilateral one by the UK, uh, putting our high-energy industry out of business, probably moving abroad, so we'll actually import those products back on a diesel-powered ship to the UK, uh, and also the energy security that's gone, or insecurity that's gone round it. So, to me, this is probably the most important discussion that this Parliament can have so we can have a pathway of common sense. And I'm glad to be on the, the radio of common sense this morning discussing yes, this with you, and Mike. the television of common sense as well, let's face it. Uh, but we've got a lot of questions for you, uh, Craig. I mean, for example, a lot of people are asking me, what's going on with the energy bill, for example? We were expecting it uh, to have a vote, I think, last Tuesday. Didn't quite work out. We think it's now gone for more um, uh, amendments to be read, so it's probably going to be going through another couple of sessions, one would expect. But a lot of people are worried about some of the things in the energy bill, um, I'm not so sure that these are things which might not get cut out of it in the end. But, but things like, you know, is it going to happen that people are going to be forced to take a smart meter into their home? Is it going to happen that if they don't have the right requisite amount of, you know, green energy heating their home, that they'll have trouble selling that home? You know, those kinds of questions are what bother people a lot. Yeah, well, I focus very much on this criminality element. I mean, there's lots wrong with this bill. It's, it's nudged by Whitehall into saying, well, hydrogen's good and, and these other things are good and smart meters are required and you will do as you're told on this path to net zero. Uh, no, on the face of it, this bill does not create criminal offences. But what was so uh, unwelcome and, and I'm afraid unacceptable in my view, and that's why I focused on it in my speech, as did Jacob Rees-Mogg, was the potential for ministers of the future to create by statutory instrument, and let's be very honest, statutory instruments don't always get the attention and, and, and uh, scrutiny they deserve, to create potential uh, criminal offences with imprisonment of up to 12 months. Now, I'm tempted to ask the Justice Minister uh, a question as to, well, how is his future prison building programme going? Because you're going to need an awful lot of places. No, it was the, the worry about the potential by just SI to create new criminal offences on the back of this, this net zero ambition. And that was what I was most concerned about and why I highlighted, highlighted it very forcibly last week and forced the third uh, division or third reading division. Now, this is a bit of a peculiar bill because it originated in the Lords. So the opportunity now of further amendments is very limited because the Commons has had its, its say. Government has put down a lot of amendments on the back of the new uh, Secretary of State, Claire Cortino. Uh, the Lords cannot amend that. They have to either accept or, or reject the amendments that came from the Commons. So this is a bit of a peculiar bill. I'm sorry to say the opportunity for it to be amended at this stage is very limited. The only thing, and I hope the government take this opportunity, is to simply park it in the Lords and let's have a rational debate about what it's trying to intend. Yes, because one of the stories that's emerged from it as well um, is that one of the UK's biggest boiler manufacturers has said uh, that because it will have to raise the price of gas boilers, it could end up costing ordinary households somewhere in the order of £2,300 uh, a year 
uh, to have new equipment fitted, um, to comply with whatever might come out of this energy bill. So, I mean, it's no small beer, this, is it? And it's, uh, there's a letter circulated, I don't know if you've seen it, from Worcester Bosch uh, on social media, yes. in which it talks about, you know, what might happen. They're still waiting to see what the government's sort of new rules will be. But clearly, whatever it is, it's going to cost more money. Well, of course, everything to do with net zero costs more money. There's the report over the weekend that it could cost £63 billion pounds, uh, over a number of years to strip out the old gas pipes if yeah. they have their way. These are all added costs that just keep coming out of the woodwork on this net zero process. Now, I did see that letter yesterday, and I, and I must say, uh, Mike, I wasn't aware that this was currently under consultation. Now, the mm. consultation meant to start next year, is that uh, the, the boiler manufacturers will have to sell 4% of the entirety of what they sell being uh, heat pump related. Uh, that goes up to 6% the year after, and it has to be 25% of everything they sell mm. by 2028. I mean, I don't know if I'm wrong, but I, I li we live in a, a capitalist society. I go in a shop and I choose what I want to yeah. buy. That's how it works. Right. Uh, and if the manufacturers are, are selling something at the right price, and it does all the things I want it to do, I'll probably buy it. But this is actually an enforcement of the, the numbers of heat pumps that have to be sold. I mean, the opportunity for mis-selling here, I'm afraid, are obvious. And this is also applying in the electric vehicle market. Similar type of progressive, thou shalt sell certain percentage of cars as EVs. What about the consumer? The consumer should be in the driving seat of this. If they want them, they'll buy them. If they work, they'll buy them. And if the price is right, they'll buy them. Thankfully, this is still under consultation. But, you know, not many months away this is meant to come in. Uh, and so these added costs, say Worcester Bosch, doesn't manage to encourage its customers to buy heat pumps because they just don't want them. The neighbours have got one. It doesn't work. It's, it's pretty inefficient. It's rubbish. Uh, they will have to bear a fine mm. and they'll have to be finding that fine money out of levying a, an extra fee on the boilers, i.e. the gas boilers that people yeah. want. I mean, this, I'm afraid, is very dangerous ground. It needs to be scrapped. I'm afraid, as does a 2030 ban on uh, on traditional internal combustion engine cars and vans as well. Because we've seen uh, with the result in, um, in Ryslip, uh, the, you know, Boris's old seat, uh, that these aren't wanted. Uh, they voted against uh, Mayor Khan's uh, charge, his ULES, £12.50 a day. And I would have thought, if the government's got any sense, there are very few votes in this net zero ambition once the costs are recognised. Right. Kerry Badenoch's come out and said that, you know, she would like to see China um, heading for net zero. I mean, what I think people would have been more uh, willing to accept was if she said, you know, once China does it, then maybe we'll consider it, because I think that's kind of where we should be in terms of international diplomacy, you know, because if China did say, all right, we're going to go net zero, I think most people in this country who currently think it's a waste of money and time might say, OK, well, if they've done it, then and they've shown us the way, then let us copy them. Well, this has to be a global effort, if you're going to bother at all. I mean, let's be clear, uh, a Chinese president doesn't even turn up at the COP26, COP27, COP28, whatever daft number we're now on. They don't even turn up. Uh, in India and Indonesia and other countries that are on a growth pathway, they are chasing cheap energy because they know cheap energy uh, finances growth. It gets more people out of poverty than anything else that's ever been created. So these growing countries are taking very little 
uh, measure or, or notice of these things. And people are rightly saying, well, how come our 1% and these uh, costs and deprivations we'll have to put ourselves through, lack of freedoms, is going to somehow save the planet, whilst all the while uh, China is going gangbusters for new coal. And, and as I said earlier, the, you know, the incremental CO2 in just one year out of China is the entirety of the UK's output. And China in the last eight years has outputted more CO2 than, the, than Britain has since the Industrial Revolution. That's putting it into some sort of facts that you can understand. So doing this unilaterally makes no sense. Mm. If you're going to do this, it needs to be global. And what worries me more than anything else is there is bound to be a eureka technology around the corner. It doesn't need us being nudged into technologies that don't work very well. You know, wind farms that are irregular, solar panels that obviously don't work at night. No thoughts at all about uh, connecting up these uh, new wind farms and solar uh, farms. Uh, And no thought at all about where you're going to store the, the energy for when the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. None of these things have been right. thought about. There may be a Eureka technology. I certainly think small modular reactors are a better way forwards uh, as a means of electricity generation. But we are rather kidding ourselves because the entirety of energy use in the, in the UK, only 20% is electricity. 80% is gas, petrol, diesel in your tanks and that type of thing. And, you know, coal uh, uh, that you may be using for heating at home. So we, even if we manage to get all of our electricity, some renewable source and the storage is sorted out, you've still got 80% uh, to find as well. This is unbelievably expensive. The rest of the world isn't doing it. Perhaps some of that money that we're spending on these ambitions, um, ambitions will be better off on adaptation uh, because, quite frankly, we're like King Canute while the rest of the world is taking very little notice of any of this. Yeah, exactly right. And just to push home for you, Craig, how influential this show is, uh, I've already got this from Tony in Sutton uh, in Ashfield, who says, great show, Craig McKinley should be PM as he talks common sense and it's time the net zero rubbish was scrapped. There you go. Uh, so from uh, from, uh, well, so, from, net zero, net zero from net zero rubbish. to hero, Craig, in uh, 15 minutes. Brilliant. Uh, good to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. Craig McKinley there uh, on the uh, College Green outside of the Houses of Parliament, uh, where there's going to be an urgent question, apparently, about net zero coming up Online, at some point in the next hour. Uh, also, Dan Hodges is here. Uh, this is Talk TV. Good afternoon and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. There's plenty going on this week, but nobody can quite put their hands on what the big story is. Well, there is supposed to be some kind of emergency question being asked, urgent question rather, uh, in the House of Commons this afternoon. In about half an hour, we think, something to do with net zero, but we're not entirely sure who's asking it uh, or indeed what it will be. But net zero is still very much at the heart of very many of the conversations going on uh, because of the energy bill. We just heard from Craig McKinley. Uh, He's very much against many of the things in the energy bill and an awful lot of people are discovering parts of it are actually quite untenable but many of those will disappear by the time it actually makes itself uh, into a bill and into law so we'll reach back and figure that one out later on uh, i'd like to say dan hodges is here from the mail on sunday dan welcome back good to see you. to the independent republic of mike graham we've not much. seen you for a while and in that period i mean all i can say to you is it's all kind of crumbled um hasn't quite it? literally like <laughs> quite like, literally. like bad yes. concrete uh, we've got rishi sunak sort of promising to do things not being able to do them reneging on things he said he was going to do. Um, we've got Suella Braverman talking about banning dogs. Um, we've got all sorts of um, uh, banning uh, things, calls to ban other things. 
you know, next it will be, you know, let's put on some, I don't know, teaching assistants onto every school to make sure that even though they haven't got enough teachers, they'll have more teaching assistants. It's just all gone horribly wrong, isn't it? It has, and it, it feels a bit like, for, for those of us that are old enough to remember, it, it feels like we've been transported back in time to mm. the sort of fag end of the, the John Major yeah. administration. I mean, that's what I was I was writing about this weekend. I mean, I remember back then when uh, like there was a hotel fell into the sea and the, and the Grand National didn't start right. and John Smith did a did a very good speech in the House of Commons in which he kind of pinned it on the government yeah. I mean a bit unfairly because it wasn't obviously neither no. of those things were John Major's fault but, but it just happens, fe- it, it just fed into a mood that the government was out of control and it was it was out of time and yeah. that's coming I mean so we've got Obviously, they've got the concrete things. We had the prison escape. We've got, like, Chinese spies mm. running amok around the House right. of Commons. And, obviously, we've got dangerous dogs. And, I mean, it's like I was uh, saying off air. I mean, it, all, all we need now is a Cones hotline. Yes. And we've got the full set, basically. Yeah, it really is. I mean, because there are those stories that just keep reverberating around, don't they? And, and, and unfortunately for Rishi Sunak, or you might say he's brought it upon himself, Everything that goes wrong now is his fault. Yeah, I mean, I think there's. I mean, I think this is one of the things. I mean, the biggest problem facing the government actually is just time. This is a government that's been in thirteen years, yeah. and what you see is obviously when a government first comes in, and the, the Conservatives were very effective at doing this. You have a period when you can blame it on the other lot mm. and just say, "Well, look, we inherited this mess. We're just trying to clean it up." But then you cross over into a point where. People just don't want to hear excuses anymore. I mean, we saw, you know, Gillian Keegan with with the concrete thing. I mean, I thought she very fairly pointed out this is a problem that goes back to the to the sort of mid to late nineteen nineties. Yeah. But people don't want to hear that anymore. They're no. tired of excuses from Rishi Sunak and his ministers for why things are going wrong. They just want them to get things right yeah. and at the moment they're not getting things but right. But also they come out with statements like we are now going to order the police to investigate every lead that they get and clearly nobody in their right mind thinks that that's what the police can do even if they wanted to do it. They can't <laughs> investigate every lead. I mean yes it would be nice if they solved one or two crimes uh, while they're actually at the business of uh, law enforcement but to make these sort of blanket statements as if they're going to happen People are fed up with it. That, well, they are. And I think also for, you know, for I think it's a particular problem for Rishi Sunak. And the reason it's a particular problem for him is he's built his entire brand on being not an, a, a sort of a great sort of Chichilian national leader, but a great sort of project, a project yeah. manager, prime minister. He's the guy who's, you know, he's going to look at the spreadsheets and he's going to he's going to get across the budgets and he's going to, you know, get across everything and everything's going to be calm but he's and like, it's going to be me, competent. He's like the CEO that makes the presentation. Sorry, he's like the, the, the sort of management consultant that makes the presentations. The CEO. He's not the CEO, is he? Well, that's the. Po- I think that's what that's what people are starting to find out about him. I mean, and and if he is if he is the CEO. He's not a CEO who, for whatever reason, is able to get get to grips with with with, with the business he's, he's running. And like I said, somebody like Boris, you, you can see these things. You know, Boris would have had a way of kind of just laughing them off or yeah. brushing them aside or, or or successfully blaming them on someone else. It's sticking to Rishi Sunak yeah. now. And, and as you say, once you get like the sort of you get the black spot on you. Mm. Once once people a narrative is created things are going wrong it's very very difficult then to 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 turn it around yes but for Keir Starmer you know things haven't really moved I mean since you and I last spoke and it's probably a few months ago um yes he's still ahead in the polls yes he's still the leader of the Labour Party um but he hasn't become for me anyway any more impressive I don't think have you seen a change in him 
I, I mean, I've, I've certainly. I mean, the, I, again, I wrote about this. I actually saw him. He was on the. Um, he was on the House of Commons Terrace last week, and he, he'd actually had quite a bad PMQs. He had a. He had a bit of an open goal. He and wasn't he brilliant. Of, he, I saw he, that he wasn't you, his you best. That, he he yeah. wasn't at his best. But there was something different about him. You could see it, his body language, his whole demeanour. He was. He was there. He was relaxed. He. Uh, you know. He had a, a sort of early evening. He had a. He had a beer. He was sort of glad handing some of his MPs. And I've seen it. I, I've seen it with people before. I saw it with Blair. Saw it a bit with Cameron. He's crossed over now. He's moment. crossed over from, rightly or wrongly, mentally he's made the transition from being leader of the opposition to prime minister in waiting, yeah. and that's quite that's quite a significant moment. And I, I, because it start again, it feeds into this concept of, of of the narrative. You know, there's suddenly there's an aura of power around him, and people start feeding into that, and that becomes a sort of a, a, a positive, self fulfilling prophecy. So. You're right. Nothing's changed, but he doesn't. He doesn't really want anything to change, and he doesn't need anything to change because he's so far ahead at the moment. I mean, I actually thought there was a moment after the after the by elections where obviously the Tories got absolutely spanked massively, mm. and two of them had just clung on in Uxbridge for the reasons we all understand. Where there was a bit of bouncing around, and he seemed he seemed a bit unnerved by that. But he but as we as we come back from recess, he seems to have calmed things down now, and his view is. Just steady as she goes, all things being equal, I'm going to be Prime Minister. And I, I, I think he's right. Yeah, I mean, I hear other uh, sort of commentators saying strange things like, well, of course, Rishi Sunak doesn't want to do anything leading up to the election period because it might rock the boat. And you kind of go in, well, surely the point is to do something. Well, he's got to, to do something, people, isn't he? I mean, I mean yeah. Trevor Kavanagh wrote about this the other day. You know, he's reached this point now where it's like the wheels are spinning or they're stuck in the sand or whatever analogy you want to use. But there's no kind of actual policy being made there's no improvements being made that, that anybody can say well he's done that i mean i can't think of one thing that rishi sunak has done that has been good since he's been prime minister no i mean the one thing i would say for him is there are just some signs i mean we've got some more figures today as well with wage, wages are now wage increases are now finally starting to outpace yeah. inflation um there are just a, a couple of signs that the economy is starting to just move into move into a slightly better place but I think the problem for Rishi Sunak and the government is I think that I think that change is coming too late mm. because again, you saw this happen. We we saw this happen in the run up to ninety seven. You know, Ken Clark and Major did actually manage to turn the economy around. By the time we got to the election, the, com- the economy was on quite a solid footing, and people said, "Oh, you, you put a bit more money in our pockets. Yeah. Thanks very much. We're going to pocket it." Right. But we remembered the hard times, right. and, we, we, and we're, we're showing also, you the door. And we're also just a bit tired of all of the nonsense. Tired of it, but also the, there is the danger for Rishi Sunak is if people do feel a bit more economically comfortable, if they do feel a bit more economically secure, then they can sometimes think, "Well, do you know what?" I can take a little bit of a risk on on yeah. on the other guy, and certainly what you are seeing is there's a mood, certainly across the country, which is whatever doubts and fears people have about Keir Starmer and Labour. And let's be honest, there's not a huge enthusiasm for Keir there Starmer, isn't. but there's not a great deal of fear about him either. And there is a mood that says, "Look, this lot can't really do any worse." Yeah, I mean, I think some people have that mood. I think there are still others, and I would maybe count myself as one of them, who look at their front bench and just go. I can't imagine these guys in government. You know, there was a moment, you know, you know, I know what you're saying about the moment for Starmer to cross over into, you know, possibly the next leader. But when you look around him, you don't see a lot of people that could do the jobs in the great, in, you know, sort of um, departments of state. But having said that, there's a lot of people currently doing those jobs that you can't see. Well, them exactly. Either. Exactly. I mean, I, but I, at I, least kind of, I don't, I mean, I guess I, I, because they're doing them, they seem a bit more credible. 
Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know, people like, you know, people like, you know, Rachel Rees, for example. I mean, she's a very, very solid, slightly dull, yeah. technocratic, safe pair of hands. I don't think anybody really thinks Rachel Reeves is going to do go, get in and suddenly do some 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 crazy no. left wing stuff. I mean, I mean, what what this? I mean, the, the advantage for Keir Starmer, and this is where I mean, fair play to him. The big advantage he's got is obviously he can very simply contrast what came before. I mean, you're saying you look around the shadow cabinet now and think, well, can we see these people run the country? Well, I'll tell you what, you can see these people. Running the country a lot more than you could see Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell and yes. and, and, and I was about funny you read my mind I was about to ask you about, them about the, the Corbynisters because yeah. I mean I think we can probably say once and for all that that Starmer has routed them hasn't he Yeah absolutely I mean the I mean the one interesting thing obviously is here in London is is you know is Jeremy has Jeremy Corbyn been so routed that he wants a little bit of revenge and a bit of payback mm. and I think he probably does um, which I, I mean I don't think. Jeremy Corbyn will run for mayor, but I definitely think he'll run as in an constituency. constituency. Yeah. And just the and do you one, think he could win that. Yeah, I think he could. I mean, I think it'd be close, but I think he, I think mm. he potentially could. I mean, let's be honest. Whatever we think about him, he's very popular with his constituents up there, and he'll be able to play the "I'm an independent and yeah. I've been put upon and, and martyred." And also, if they're if they're fans of Jeremy Corbyn, they won't be fans of Starmer. No, they? exactly. I mean, the one thing about the Corbynites, though, I mean, you know. I have a sneaking. If, if if we don't start to see the polls shifting soon, I I do think we'll be getting into the situation where Starmer is looking at a very very significant majority because what it will show is that the public have just gone like that. But let's say it doesn't, mm. and and as you know, most people seem to think it's quite close. If we get a situation where Starmer comes in with either a, it's either a hung parliament or he's got a small majority, at that point the core, but you've got you're going to have 35, 30, 35 Corbynite MPs who are going to suddenly be in play. Mm. So that's the one danger for him. So he, he's certainly routed Corbyn, whether he's completely routed the Corbyn Easters yet. We'll, yeah. we well, he's still got Angela Rayner hanging around. She's speaking at the TUC today, talking about introducing a employment rights bill in the first 100 days of a new Labour government. Um, I suppose you'd have to wait and see what that was going to entail before you went whether that's a good idea or not. But she's still kind of, you know, I, I thought there was a moment at which she might be removed as a deputy leader. No, she is, and there was there was there was some talk of it, and she basically pushed back and she won. And she is she, I mean, she know, I mean, she is influential, right? Because the the, the one thing, I mean, let's face it, if Starmer could get rid of her, he would, yeah. right? They don't get on, and she's as good as admitted, as admitted yeah. it, and they're very very different people. But she does have an independent mandate because she got she, she got elected, and so that he can't really move her. Also, I mean, I would say, and you know, we all know what Angela's you know Angela's what Angela's got certain certain faults. But I think she's actually quite. I think she's good for the Labour Party. Yeah, I, I think, think so. it, I think it's good for the Labour Party that you've got someone there who is not, you know, who is not a North London yeah. lawyer, you know, yeah. and somebody. I mean, you know. You know, she, she obviously a, plays a, up. A, she plays up her working class roots, but it's statement. but it's true. But it's true. Yeah. You know. Oh, it is absolutely. You know, think, and, and, and there's an authenticity people, there. I mean, I think. I think there's a reluctance now from even knowing newspapers as we do. From you know that story that came out about how oh Angela Arena likes to go on these you know seven hour long raves in Mallorca. Most people went good honour. Fair enough. You know nobody yeah. cares about yeah. that stuff anymore. So you go you're not going to make any grounds. You're not going to make any grounds by ridiculing someone who does that because the people that want to vote for her will yeah. go well I wish I was with her. I mean I think there was one I think there was one when she was like she was doing a bit of DJing you know a few months ago and, yeah. and you know she needs to just slightly you know. I think in public she might just want to calm it down a bit. But if she wants to, as you said, if she wants to get, go on a bit of a 
a bit of a bender on in a holidays. Fair mm. play. But. Yeah, absolutely right. So, I mean, we're about to enter the kind of conference period. Um, it's all going to be, for Rishi Sunak, I suppose, a bit more rocky than it will be for Keir Starmer because... I mean, there's still a lot of people in his party that don't want him there. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the thing is that there's no prospect of a change now. I mean, you know, however bad it gets, that but the Tories realise they can't. I mean, we'll have a little bit of oil. Let's bring back Boris, but it's just not going to happen. Right. Um, I think even Boris has given up. on Yeah, that. I mean, Boris doesn't mind. You know, Boris will stoke a little bit because he just likes it, but he's not going to. He's not going to come back. Certainly not this side of of the election. Mm. I think we've got to be careful because we always hype these things up as you know you know the narrative will be rishi facing crisis as he goes into conference then he does the conference speech and it's a triumph but i think what we will see at this conference for him is it's going to basically kick up it's going to basically fire the starting gun for the next tory leadership election i think you'll see a number of members of the of, of the cabinet who are um who 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 fancy their chances of, of replacing rishi sunak if the tories lose we'll start to see them setting out their stall mm. at this conference and you'll see people you know sort of wandering slightly off their brief yes. and getting into getting into other things mm. for labor i mean it'll just be it'll be steady as she goes don't scare the horses there'll be a lot of talk about how we'll see you know business is going to be back at labor conference in the in in, in a big way you know there're going to be a lot more suits than you know um uh, you know, tie-dye tops and stuff this right. time. It, the, the and suits the will be back. are having a party. Yeah, exactly. I mean, all that, you know, all the corporates are, com- mm. are, are, are coming back. I think the one thing is we'll be looking for, I mean, probably the last party conference before the election, are we going to start to see Starmer just set out, put some meat on the bones of what he'd actually do? I mean, I think that's the thing I'm looking for. Now, I suspect he's being advised not to. But I do think if if there's if there's one issue that he's got to address, it's it's not this thing that people say. Oh, he don't know what he stands for. They literally just don't know what he's going to do. Mm. I mean, I don't know what he's going to do if, yeah. he, if, if he wins. Maybe he doesn't know. What he's maybe he. Do. I, mean, I, I think yeah, there may be a good part of that. So he does need to just set out more clearly what he'll actually do with power if he gets. Absolutely. Well, it's going to be fascinating autumn, I think, perhaps, and uh, we shall track it. Certainly will. With great interest, Dan. Good to see you. Thank good you very much you. indeed, Thanks. Dan Hodges from the Mail on Sunday there. Um, Keir Starmer, who is he? What is he? What's he going to do? Uh, can you answer any of those questions? You know what to do. 0344 499 1000 uh, is the number. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. <laughs> 